This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. When my 15 plus years or so of living here in Chicagoland, I've come to learn that we are a rather opinionated people, aren't we? Uh, and I say we because I think after 15 years, although I'm not a native, I'm an import, I think I can count myself after 15 years. And you know, our, our opinions, sometimes they divide us, don't they? Um, take baseball, for example. Uh, we got Cub fans, right? Woo! And then we've got a Sox fan. I know there's at least one, right? We've got, we've got Northsiders, we've got Southsiders. We've got National League, we've got American League. We've got those who think uh, the pitcher should take both the mound and the plate. And we've got those who think the pitcher should delegate. Designate. Uh, I worked so hard on that line. Wah, 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 wah. But you know what? We're not divided in everything. Some things we're really united, aren't we? Like we are united in our love for the bulls. Amen? Wow. I really thought we were a bit more united in our love for the bulls. Amen? There we go. We're just getting warmed up like a car in the morning. But here's the thing. Like we've got the greatest dynasty in the history of basketball, don't we, in the 90s, led by the true GOAT, the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan. We have currently got the greatest play-by-play team in all of basketball with Adam and Stacey King. We have got the king of the fourth quarter with DeMar DeRozan. In fact, we as Bulls fans, we are so united in the love of our Bulls. You know what we did? We named the arena the United Center. Oh, man, that was, I really thought that was going to go better. I really did. We're united in our love of the Bears. We were united that Nagy and Pace had to go. We're united that Fields is the future of the franchise. We are united in our love of deep dish pizza, of Italian beef, and the one and only proper way to eat a hot dog. And yet within our unity, there's differences, aren't there? There's differences. For example, like, do you think the Bears should move to Arlington Heights or not? Do you like the new coach and GM or not? Do you like Lou Malnati's or Giorgio's? We're... Giorgio's. Yes. Oh, good. Okay. We're ready to go. I'm liking this. But we're also, we're in agreement like not Uno's, right? That's just a chain. Um, beef. We got, we got Pratillo's. We got Al's. But stay away from Johnny's. Their fries are terrible. And like we all got our different hot, favorite hot dog place. Mine is Home Depot. Like when you're making that third trip on a Sunday or on a Saturday morning uh, because you kept forgetting things on a hot summer day, like that Home Depot hot dog is excellent. And it's okay that we got differences. But sometimes we allow those differences to define us and then divide us. Like I've heard people say, you can't possibly be a true Chicago Bears fan if you want them to move to Arlington Heights. Right? They're the Chicago Bears, not the Arlington Heights racehorses. And uh, like we won't even talk to people to put that other condiment that shall not be named on their hot dog, will we? We allow these things to divide us. And you know, as fun as Chicago is, I think that kind of paints a rather accurate picture of the state of our church today, doesn't it? We are, by and large, a church deeply divided. We're divided over our beliefs, over these beliefs that should unite us, and we are divided over our behaviors that should define us. We are divided uh, individually over what a Christian is and how a Christian should live, and we are divided corporately over what a church is and how a church should function. We are divided over what we believe about the gospel, and we are divided in how to live out the gospel. Because to varying degrees, we misunderstand the gospel. 
Right, we misunderstand what the gospel is. We misunderstand what the gospel does. We misunderstand what it is that defines and unites us as a family. And that's why Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia. Churches that he had planted, people that he knew, people that he loved, but they were churches that were deeply divided over what they believed about the gospel. And they were people who were divided over how to live out the gospel. And, and the point that Paul's making throughout our series here in, the, in his letter to the Galatians and our series, What Makes Us Family, is that our faith in Jesus Christ makes us family. Nothing more, nothing less. Our faith is what defines us, it is what unites us, and it is what leads us to live out and respond in love. We are united by the gospel. Right, that's the title of our sermon this morning, United by the Gospel. And what I want us to see throughout our, our time in this passage here in chapter 2 is this. It's that we are not divided by our differences, but united by our faith in Jesus Christ. Right, we are not divided by our differences, but united by our faith in Jesus Christ. We are united in what we believe about the gospel and how to live out the gospel. That's what we're going to see. And so if you haven't already, let's go ahead and take out our Bibles and let's open them up to the New Testament book of Galatians. We're going to be in this opening passage in chapter 2 this morning as we continue uh, Paul's story here in these opening two passages. And he begins here in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, saying, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation. Now here, uh, we don't have a lot of information, but when we take uh, Luke's writing in the book of Acts and we overlay that on top of Paul's letters, we get a bit more complete picture of the, the when and the where and the why and the who. And the when, Paul says, was 14 years after he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, a, a story that Luke writes about in Acts 9 that we uh, talked about briefly last week. And so this, this is about AD 46, 47, and a side note on dates and, and references to time here, um, they counted and referenced time differently than we do. They counted portions as whole. And so it wasn't necessarily 14 full years after, but a portion of 14 years. Take, for example, when we hear Jesus say that on the third day he would rise, that after three days he would rise. We hear three days and we think 72 hours, don't we? And so Jesus, if he was crucified and died on Friday evening, Friday afternoon, three days later would put a Saturday, Sunday, Monday evening. But how many of you have celebrated Easter service on Monday evening? Like most of us are doing it on Sunday morning, right? That's only like 36 hours. So like there's a discrepancy there, isn't it? Well, no, because they're counting portions as wholes. It's Friday was the first day, Saturday the second day, Sunday the third day. And I say that because if you're a numbers guy like me, you're getting caught up in that. It's easy to read things like that and think you're reading a discrepancy when in fact you're not. Does that make sense? Little sidebar. We got a couple of those today. But here's the thing. He spent 14 years preparing alone with God, right? We saw him last week in Arabia for a period of time alone with God and then preaching to the Gentiles throughout Europe and Asia. And now we get to the where. And we know from Acts 11 that uh, the gospel was beginning to spread in the early church. And, and the church in Antioch, a, a town just north of Jerusalem, it was growing. And the guys back in headquarters, uh, James and, and Peter and John, back at the mothership in Jerusalem, they, they sent this guy named Barnabas to go check it out. And, and Barnabas gets there and he's like, I need some help. So what Barnabas does is he, uh, 
He goes to find this guy named Paul that people had talking about up in Tarsus, this, this former persecutor turned preacher. And he brings Paul uh, back to Antioch, and they spent a year uh, preaching there. And I love this little thing in, in verse 26 in Acts 11. It says that in Antioch, as Paul and Barnabas were there, uh, that is when the disciples were first called Christians. It's when they coined the term. But did you know that wasn't what Christians referred to themselves as? Uh, it was not a term of endearment. It was actually a sarcastic name that the Greeks used, sarcastically referring to these followers of Christ, these followers of the way. But from Antioch, it says, Paul, he went up again to Jerusalem. He, he went up, not because he's heading north like when we head up to Door County, when we head up to the Dells, because in all actuality, uh, Jerusalem was south of Antioch. And so when they're referring to these geographical references here, they're not referring to uh, direction, but to elevation, right? He's going up into the Judean hills to Jerusalem. And it says that he went again, right, some 10 years after he had visited uh, Peter uh, in a story that we looked at last week in chapter 1. And he went with Barnabas. And Barnabas, for those of you that don't know, he was a trusted leader in the early church. Luke, he says in Acts 11 that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. And not only that, but that a great many people were added to the Lord because of his work there at the church in Antioch. Barnabas, he was so respected that he was later referred to in Acts 14 as an apostle alongside Paul and James and Peter and John of equal standing with them. But see, Paul, he doesn't need to share all this detail in this letter to the Galatians because they know him, right? Barnabas, he was with Paul on his first missionary, missionary journey as he planted these churches. But he didn't just take Barnabas. It says he also took Titus along with him. Titus was a, a young man that Paul had led to Christ, a, a young man that he had discipled. He, he had traveled with Paul, and then he was even sent out by Paul, overseeing uh, churches in Corinth and in Crete, kind of in the same way that Timothy oversaw the church in Ephesus. But now we get to the why, right? Why did they go to Jerusalem? Well, he doesn't say anything about being called by the church in Jerusalem. He doesn't say anything about being sent by the church in Antioch. Now it says in verse 2 that he went because of a revelation, right? God spoke this. God sent him. God was calling him to Jerusalem. And, and he's likely referring to a revelation that Luke writes about in Acts 11, that while Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, a prophet came up from Jerusalem named Agabus. And it, and it says that he stood up and he foretold by the Holy Spirit of a great famine over all the world that would come. And that's likely why he traveled to Jerusalem. God's sovereign hand guiding and orchestrating these events. Gathering his appointed leaders together so that they could then go and care for his people. Rather than many different churches, they were one united church. Not competing with each other, but caring for each other as a family. And I add in this layer of Acts because I want us to see the unity of Scripture. Right? Scripture, it's written over centuries by a multitude of people. But it is one complete and cohesive story 
written in this beautiful dance between the human mind and the Holy Spirit. And, and even just here, what we see is we see, we see left brain Luke writing with this historical beauty of the early church in Acts and, and right brain Paul writing with theological beauty of the early church throughout his letters and epistles, right? One single united story, God's story. And now we come to the what, after Paul and Barnabas and Titus, after they arrived, he says in verse 2, he says, I set before them, though privately before those who seem to be influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. And this wasn't a public forum. This was a, a private discussion with those who seemed influential, those who were, were widely respected those who he would later say in verse 9 were James, the half-brother of Jesus, Peter, and John, who, who seemed to be pillars, he says. They were widely recognized as leaders and founders in, in the early church. And he mentions them, and he mentions them by name, because while his authority as an apostle was in question, as we've seen these past couple of weeks, their authority was widely accepted. And he shares with him the gospel that he preached among the Gentiles over these last 14 years. Why would he do that? Well, we saw last week, Paul, Paul wasn't insecure. Paul didn't fear others. That wasn't it. Right? He wasn't wondering if he was preaching the wrong version of the gospel of like teaching them that one plus one equals three, of E before I except after S, whatever that crazy spelling rule is. Uh, he, he wasn't mixing up the Trinity and trying to make an analogy that like, you know, the Trinity's like water. You ever heard that one, right? You can freeze it into ice. You can melt it into a liquid and vaporize it into a steam. And he, he wasn't worried about them firing back. That's modalism, Paul. Guys. Okay, so here's the deal. If you have no idea what I'm talking about right here, I need you to go to YouTube after service, not right now, and you need to look up St. Patrick's Bad Analogies. It will be five minutes well invested. You will have a good time. Those are the guys you're going to see. They're hanging out with Patrick. Here's the thing. Paul knew that the gospel he preached, he knew it wasn't man's gospel. It didn't originate. He didn't make up his own version. He knew it wasn't received from man, that it was somebody else's version, because he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He received it from Jesus himself, we saw last week. And he's stressing that while he's preaching to different people in different cultures, in different places, they are united in preaching the same gospel. Knowing that these last 14 years of preaching, that it would all have been in vain and dividing the church if they were somehow preaching different versions of the gospel. But then he goes on to make a very interesting statement, one that I think begins to get to the heart of the issue in this letter. And he says in verse 3, he says, But even Titus, who was with me, Titus was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. He mentions this because not only were some in the church in Galatia doubting his authority as an apostle, they were questioning his version of the gospel, this gospel of grace. There were some that were claiming that faith in Jesus was not enough, that it was Jesus and, Jesus and other things, even good things. Things like adopting aspects of Jewish culture, things like adhering to aspects of the Mosaic law, specifically adhering to circumcision, right? Bearing the mark of the covenant that God made with Abraham. 
This was a, a mark of Jewish pride. It was a mark of Jewish identity. It was like uh, wearing your favorite sports team's uh, logo on the jersey or, or cheering for their mascot. It, it, it's like a corporate brand. It's like a country's flag or even some soldiers that get a special tattoo to mark their unit. But for Jewish men, it was the mark of circumcision. And they were forcing Gentile Christians, right, these, these former pagans who began following Jesus to be circumcised in order to be included in God's family. And so Paul and Barnabas, uh, they were born into a Jewish family. They were raised in Jewish homes. They were biological descendants of Abraham. And, and so they bore the mark of circumcision, but Titus didn't. See, Titus was born Greek. He was raised in a Gentile home, worshiping pagan gods. And yet James and Peter and John, those who seemed influential, those who, who were viewed as pillars of the church, they didn't add any additional requirements to Titus, did they? They didn't force him to be circumcised. They agreed that he didn't need to become more Jewish in order to be more Christian. You didn't have to appear a certain way in order to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Because it wasn't faith in Jesus and Mosaic law. It wasn't faith in Jesus and Jewish culture. It wasn't faith in Jesus and voting a certain way, worshiping a certain way, dressing a certain way. It was just Jesus, wasn't it? It was just faith in Jesus. And so we see very early here that they were united in what they believed about the gospel. They were united in how they lived out the gospel, but not everyone was. He goes on to say in verse 4 and 5, he says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Kind of like we got some first century espionage going on, don't we? It was like James Bond versus Spectre, Ethan Hunt taking on the syndicate. These spies, they slipped into the meeting. They, uh, they apparently made a fake pass to get in. And these were some of the Jewish Christians that were enforcing these additional requirements on the Gentile Christians beyond faith, becoming more Jewish they infiltrated the meeting, likely the same folks who later on in Acts 15 would go on to say that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And like we read that and we're like, yeah, but we don't, that's not a thing for us, is it? I doubt many of us grew up in a church where that was a requirement for membership. But I'm sure we've all experienced an environment where adherence to cultural norms were required in addition to our faith, haven't we? where you were in some way told that you're not a true Bears fan if you want them to move to Arlington Heights. If you don't speak in tongues, you are clearly not filled with the Holy Spirit. If you don't raise your hands as we worship, you are clearly not worshiping in spirit and truth the way Jesus called us to. If you don't wear the right clothes, you don't wear your Sunday best, or worse, you wear the wrong clothes, right? You wear a hat or ripped jeans. You wear a, a Packers jersey into God's house. Or women, if your skirt's too short, then you have clearly disrespected God in his house. I'm sure we've all been told things like that. 
We've been told that if we don't serve enough, if we don't pray enough, if we don't give enough, if we don't attend enough, we are not a faithful servant of Christ. And if we don't do it the right way, our way, we are not an obedient servant of Christ. And beyond that, I know some of you have been told that if you leave this church, whatever that church was, for any reason, or if you go and you attend that church or that denomination, then I don't even know if you're saved. You have been excommunicated. We may not be requiring circumcision, but make no mistake, we've all been in environments where we have been required to adhere to additional cultural requirements. And Paul responds to this, conveying the gravity of the situation by the the harshness of his language. Remember back in chapter 1, he said, let anyone preaching a different gospel, anyone adding to the gospel as a requirement, let them be cursed by God, he said. And here he goes a step further and he denies that they're even a Christian, that they're even saved. Because by adding additional requirements to faith in Jesus, turning these cultural boundaries into Christian boundaries, enforcing that everyone line up with us and everyone look like us, these false brothers, Paul says, preaching a false gospel, they are enslaving people that Christ had set free. They are putting chains on them. And Paul begins to introduce this theme of slavery and freedom that he's going to unpack more in the second section of his letter in chapters 3 and 4, where he shows that our God, he is not an enslaver. He is a liberator, right? Just as he liberated his people from slavery in Egypt, he liberated us from the chains of sin that enslaved us. That is the good news of the gospel, that in Christ we are no longer enslaved but adopted. We are no longer slaves in Christ. We are sons and daughters in Christ. And he's going to close this middle section of his letter with a very powerful statement saying, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not go back. And yet it's easy to view the Bible as a book of rules, isn't it? It's okay. You can nod your head yes. It's easy to view Christianity as a religion of restrictions, isn't it? Like, do this and don't do that. Right? It, kind of, it starts to feel like a really bad diet, doesn't it? Like one of those, like, you ever been on a diet that requires you to eat kale? Oh! Like, I think kale came in Genesis 3. Um, a diet that requires you to eat kale but won't let you eat a French baguette. I just don't even, I don't know what that is. But that's how we view the Bible sometimes. That's how we view God's word sometimes. That's how we view God as this ruthless dictator. But it's not God doing it to us. It's us doing it to ourselves most often. Because the truth is we find comfort in those chains. They are familiar to us. And, And just like Israel wanted to return back to Egypt when they were wandering in the wilderness, we so often want to return back to the chains that enslaved us. And each requirement that we add, each restriction that we add is another link in the chain that only further enslaves us. But here's what I need you to know. God is not an enslaver. He is a liberator. Amen? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Free to live the way that our creator intended. God God is not restricting. God is loving. He, He wants what is best for us. He wants what is best for you. 
And so rather than leave you guessing at what that is or how best to live, like God is not like an Ikea person who sold you some take home and make it yourself furniture but didn't give you the directions. God ain't like that. No, God revealed his will and God revealed his way in his word, right? Through the living word of his son and through the written word of scripture. And so Paul says, do not yield in submission even for a moment to those who would impose their own cultural boundaries as Christian boundaries, making it Jesus and other things, even if it's good things in addition to your faith. And Paul, he, he wants to ensure that we are united in this, that we are united in what we believe about the gospel and united in how to live out the gospel, that we are not divided by our cultural differences but united by our faith in Jesus Christ so that the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right, the sufficiency of his sacrificial death on the cross, his victorious resurrection and his glorious ascension might be preserved so that it might be preserved for the churches in Galatia and so that it might be preserved for us some 2,000 years later. And he says in verse 6, and from those who seemed influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. To those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. They added nothing to what I said. They added no additional requirements to the gospel. They added no additional cultural customs to faith in Jesus. It was just Jesus, and they agreed with that. And so he says in verse 7, he says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars in the early church, when they perceived the grace that was given to me by the Lord Jesus Christ, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They weren't divided. They were very much united. United in what they believed about the gospel because the same gospel that Peter and John had been taught by Jesus before his death was the very same gospel that James had been taught by his half-brother after his resurrection, the very same gospel that Paul had been taught by Jesus after his ascension. And, and so these three pillars, they, they vouched for Paul in some sense, right? They gave him the right hand of fellowship. They were united as one church with one message on one mission. But what we see here, too, notice, is that their unity did not produce uniformity, did it? While they were united in message, they were united in mission, they had very different methods, didn't they? Because they preached a very different context. They preached to very different cultures. Peter, he says, Peter predominantly preached to the Jewish people, to the, to the circumcised, the biological descendants of Abraham, who were raised in strict adherence to the Mosaic law, who, who, who spent... Uh, Years waiting for God's promised Messiah to come. And so Peter, Peter taught that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ, that he came to fulfill the law and to liberate his people once again. But Paul, on the other hand, he predominantly preached to the Gentiles, to the uncircumcised people who worshiped pagan gods before they came to their faith in Christ, who were taught they needed to earn 
the love of their gods, that they needed to capture the attention of their gods. And so Paul stressed one God in three persons, not ice, water, and steam. One God, three persons, who came to us. They didn't need to ascend a mountain to meet with their gods. God came to us because he loves us, not in response to what we've done, but in spite of what we've done. And that he saved us by his grace, his unmerited, unwarranted grace. And that we respond to that. We put our faith in that and we respond to that grace. And that difference in method, it is just as true today, isn't it? That that as God's people, we are sent on one mission to share one message, but we use very different methods, right? There's no, there is no one-size-fits-all method for fulfilling the Great Commission of helping more people know Jesus and grow to be like Jesus. There is no one-size-fits-all method for living out the Great Commandment of pointing people to Jesus by loving like Jesus, because every culture and every generation is different, isn't it? Different people, different places, different paths, in different stages of life, with different struggles, in different seasons, with different stories. And if we're honest, like, that makes the mission and sharing the message a lot messier, doesn't it? It'd be a whole lot easier if we could just go to a conference and buy the book and bring it home and say, here's how we're going to do it. It worked there. It'll work here. But that's not how it works. Take preaching, for example. Every sermon is preached to a specific people in a specific place at a specific time, right? There is no such thing as an evergreen sermon. For example, when I, uh, I've gotten to preach uh, out at Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, a church that our planting pastor planted a couple of years ago, and even if I were to take the exact same passage today and the exact same structure and outline, it is still an entirely different sermon because I'm preaching to an entirely different context, or say that I re-preach a passage that I preached here five years ago. Like, it will be a completely different sermon, won't it? God willing, a better one. If you suffer through 1 Corinthians with me, God bless you. We are still the church, though. But it's not only true of what we preach, it's true of how we preach, the way we preach, the, the style that we use in preaching. And not just the way we preach, but the way we worship. It includes the the songs that we sing, whether they're hymns or contemporary, or, man, we sang them both with one song in between this morning. Like, we're calling, how old was that song we were here to worship? Like, that's an oldie for us now, isn't it? It's true of the songs we sing. It's true of the way that we sing them. Drums and a guitar or an organ or monks chanting a cappella. Man, full disclosure, I listened to monks chanting all day Friday as I was writing my sermon, and it was incredible. I didn't understand a word of the Latin, but it was beautiful. It's true, of, it's true of where we worship, whether you're worshiping in a living room like we did back in Crystal Lake, whether we're worshiping in a theater, whether you're worshiping in a cathedral. It's true of where you worship. It's true of how we worship, the liturgy that we use. It's true of the way we worship, whether you're standing solemnly or, man, you are dancing. Like, I, da- I want to dance a whole lot more than I do. And you just kind of wave your hands in the air like you just don't care. But I know I would be a distraction to you, so I kind of tone it down a bit. I also can't dance. It's true of who leads us in worship. It's true of the aesthetic of the space in which we worship. Is it ancient or modern? Do you use uh, incense in worship? 
It's true of the aesthetic of, of the people, of the way that we dress, of a, of a pastor wearing vestments or not. It's true of the way we pray and it's true of what we pray. And you know, recently, um, I've found myself over these past few weeks drawn to far more structured and liturgical practices in my own personal uh, prayer and worship and time with God. I've been spending time in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Uh, I've been spending time recently in a new book called Be Thou My Vision, which is a a daily uh, structured devotional. I find myself relying on more regular rhythms of the daily office, and I find myself relying more on the prayers of the past saints in the church especially as I've been so worn down and tired as of late. Like I, just, I don't have the words to say. And I'm, uh, I'm currently reading a book by an Anglican priest named Tish Harrison Warren called Prayer in the Night. Side note, when I hold a book up like this, it's because I want you to see the cover, and I think it's a book you should probably go get and read. And um, also, one thing we added yesterday is we did a little project in the, in the living room, and on the, libra- in the, the shelves there, there's going to be a little section of what we as staff are reading, just so you can kind of get an insight to what we're reading and what we're getting out of it. But she had this line that really hit me a couple days ago. She says, inherited prayers, like the the prayers that others have written, inherited prayers and practices of the church, they tether us to belief far more securely than our own vacillating perspectives or self-expression. Prayer forms us, and it forms us into the image of Christ. And different ways of prayer aid us just as different types of paint, canvas, color, and light aid a painter. She says, when I was a priest who could not pray, the prayer offices of the church were the ancient tool God used to teach me to pray again. That's how I felt. And she quotes uh, an individual by the name of Stanley Harris who says in an interview, says, "Uh, evangelicalism, us, is constantly under the burden of reinventing the wheel, and you just get tired. He goes on to say, there is much to be said for Christianity as repetition, as formative. And I think that evangelicalism doesn't have enough repetition in a way that will form Christians to survive in a world that constantly tempts us to always think we have to do something new. And we've all been there in these last couple years, haven't we? I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to pray. And so you just kind of sit there, and after about five seconds, you tune out and grab a prayer book. And let the words of the past saints speak for you. And I, I say this because I don't want, like, I'm not putting on a collar next week. We're not going to Anglican. It's okay. Not this year. I'm not trying to say that one way is better than the other way. In fact, I'm trying to say the exact opposite. I'm trying to say that there are many different ways. I'm trying to show you the incredible beauty in our diversity of worship. Does that make sense? We all grew up in different churches. And we all grew up worshiping in different ways. Some of you danced, and that's beautiful. Some of you spoke in tongues. That's great. Some of you, some of you like me, you came from the frozen chosen, and you didn't dare bring your arms up above your waist. We all grew up in different styles of worship, didn't we? And we come here, and man, even when Georgie leads or when Tim leads, it's different. When I preach, when Pastor Robin preaches, it's different. I love that. It's like the one-two punch with running backs, you know? I don't know which one's thunder and which one's lightning. You have to ask Pastor Rob about that one. But there's incredible beauty in the way 
in our diversity of worship. Think about the way that we worship. It looks and it sounds very different from our brothers and sisters upstairs at Bethel Church. There's a church that meets upstairs. They are a a Korean Baptist church. I guarantee you it sounds different because a lot of times it's in Korean. Sometimes it's in Mongolian. And you know what? I can hear them right above my, my study after service. And you know what? It's beautiful. I'm singing along with them. The way we worship, it looks and sounds different from an Anglican service. It looks and sounds different from an African-American service. It looks and sounds different from an Eastern Orthodox service. And it looks and sounds different from Catholic Mass, doesn't it? There's incredible beauty in our diversity of worship. And yet I think, um, I think we got a little bit of colonialism built into our Western DNA, don't we? Thinking that our way is the only way. Right? Our way of worship is the only way of worship. But here's the thing. You exclude when you make your expression of the gospel the exclusive expression. When you make your way the only way of worship, when you make your expression the exclusive expression, what you do is you make the method more important than the mission or the message. You make the how more important than the who. And you want to take a guess who the who is that matters most when we gather together? It's not you. It's Jesus. He is the one whom we have gathered to worship Here I am to worship you, we sang this morning, God. But when we elevate the how above the who, we we, we worship all about me, all about you, about your experiences, about your feelings, about your preferences rather than Jesus. But the, the universal Catholic Church, when we see that word Catholic in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, right, it means the, the universal church, big C church. The church is not united in method, but in message, in what we believe about the gospel. Amen? And we are united in mission, how we live out the gospel. And look at how Peter, or how Paul closes this passage in verse 10. He says, only they asked us, they asked Peter and Barnabas and Titus to remember the poor. And he says, that was the very thing that I was eager to do. He kind of circles back to the reason they came to Jerusalem, how they were going to respond to this revelation of this pending famine. But what I love is they didn't only remember the poor with their thoughts and prayers. They responded to the poor with their actions and their resources. We see that throughout Paul's letters. And they didn't respond begrudgingly as though they were being forced to help each other. No, they responded eagerly because they wanted to help each other. They didn't respond as separate, divided churches, but a single, united church. Not not competing with one another for resources, but sharing their resources. Caring for one another. Because love, loving one another, is not this optional add-on to the gospel. It's not this bonus add-on when we have time, when we feel like it. No, it is foundational to the mission and living out the gospel. And what we see Paul go on in the last portion of his letter in chapters 5 and 6 is he says that faith works through love. Faith at work. Faith works through love. So through love, he says, serve one another. Bearing one another's burdens, doing good for everyone. It's not a bonus add-on. It is part of who we are. And so, for example, one of the ways that we live this out here at Redemption, that is why every month we set aside 10% of our giving for a fund that we call Helping Churches Thrive, to fund our church planning and missionary partners. We don't take up collections for that. We don't take up special offerings. It is part of who we are. 
And that is why a couple years ago, even though we had no idea what hands and feet was going to be at the time, we just kind of felt God calling us to go somewhere like he called Abraham to go somewhere without telling him where. That's why we began setting aside 5% of our giving for hands and feet. And then we got to see some benevolence needs in our church. Then we got to see needs in our community as we've been able to fund a hotel room every month for Journey's uh, homeless shelter program. And now we get to see that come to fruition with so many diapers and wipes down in the basement underneath this section in the pantry that we're going to start handing out to the poor in two months. Not as a bonus add-on, but a part of who we are. But man, let's, let's not allow our differences to divide us, but let's ensure that our faith in Jesus Christ unites us. Amen? And there's two ways that we've been talking about this morning. I just want to make sure we get these today. Number one, we are united in what we believe about the gospel. It is our faith in Jesus Christ that makes us family. Nothing more, nothing less. Jesus, I don't know if you know this, Jesus is not a polygamist. Jesus has one bride, one undivided bride, and one body, one undivided body. We are one church made up of many churches from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every people, from every generation spanning over 2,000 years, and from every denomination, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, all worshiping one God in three persons. All saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Many different yet beautiful expressions of our belief in the very same gospel. Beliefs that were established in the early creeds of the church. The Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed. We read the Apostles' Creed a couple weeks ago. I want us to read it together again. I want us to remember what it is about the gospel that we believe that unites us across such a wide spectrum. Read this with me. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen? Amen. I mean, let's not make it. The church has her differences, doesn't she? We're different. And some of those, we have many differences, and some of those are important differences. But let's discuss our differences rather than allowing them to divide. Let's hold our open-handed issues truly and honestly with an open hand. Let's read to learn, not simply to affirm. You're going to see books on that shelf that I'm reading that I don't agree with, but here's why. I'm seeking to understand the why behind the what that others believe. Shouldn't we be doing that? Should we be seeking to understand why they believe what they believe rather than assuming and accusing them? The old saying goes, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. We are united in what we believe about the gospel. And number two, we are united in how we live out the gospel. That our faith in Jesus Christ leads us to love. And love the way scripture defines it, the way God defines it, is an active 
expression and demonstration of our faith, living out our faith by loving like Jesus who, who called us to love one another, to love our brothers and sisters. But he didn't end there, did he? Because he also called us to love our neighbor and to love them as ourselves. But he didn't stop there because Jesus also said to love our enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus didn't live out anybody in who we are called to love. And so we love like Jesus by bearing one another's burdens, by doing good, doing good for everyone. Remembering that we are united in what we believe about the gospel and we are united in how we live out the gospel because we are not divided by our differences, but united in our faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that um, there is but one gospel message. There is one message of hope in the darkness, one message of, of peace, that you, God, you are the creator of all things, and that as you created them, you said they were not only good, but very good, creating us humanity in your very image and likeness and yet rather than worshiping you we turned from you and we broke creation and yet in that brokenness you never once turned on us no you came down to us you lived among us Emmanuel God with us you died for us forgiving us of our sins then you defeated death. You conquered death. Death does not win. And your son ascended into heaven and as he ascended, the spirit descended and now you dwell within us. And we long for that day when Jesus will return. Come, Lord Jesus. And all will be made right. And we will live in our resurrected, glorified bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. We will live in a, in a creation with no need for a son because we have your son. We long for that day. But until that day comes, Father, I pray as Jesus prayed that we would remain united in your son, that we would remain united in Christ, united in the things that are essential in how we are saved, united in our belief in the gospel, and that we would respond to that united in how we live out gospel, not under our own power, but by the power of the Spirit within us. Father, etch that into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.